Hey, you're on Community Radio, 2XX 98.3 FM, and you're on Behind the Lines. You're with Scotty, you're also with Zena, and today today we are joined first up by Sonia Randawa. Are you there, Sonia? I am, yes. Hi, yeah. Scotty. Hi, Zena. G'day. How are you? Hi, so, Sonia. So Sonia is the, the founder of the Coalition of Everyone, which is an organisation with the vision of disrupting the politics of despair and building a politics of hope through participatory, deliberative, democratic initiatives. And she focuses on citizens' assemblies, on building capacity for deepening democracy through working with local councils, schools and other organisations to increase the awareness of citizens' assemblies. So yes, welcome to the show, Sonia. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, what what is the coalition of everyone beyond um, beyond sort of what that little intro was? So, I mean, I'm only one of the founders. There are three of us, um, and the idea is to, as it says, bring people together to actually feel what democracy could be like, to experience it and then to advocate for it, and also to build networks for people to work on initiatives. As you say, we feel that politics at the moment is broken, Um, and there are lots of indicators of this. It's not about not liking the people who are in power. It's more about looking at whether or not the people in power are responsive to what the ordinary people want. And it was really clearest, I think, um, during the marriage equality vote where the elected representatives often ignored what their constituents had voted for in the referendum, even though they knew what their constituents had voted for, they just ignored it, and they felt completely entitled to do that. And it was on both sides of the marriage equality debate. And so there is a huge gap between what people want on a range of issues and what elected representatives do and debate in Parliament. Um, And that's not just here. We can see it around the world. And I think the clearest issue where there's this disconnect and the most concerning issue is on climate change, where the majority of Australians want action and the government is still um, not quite in a state of denial, but acting as though climate change is not a pressing problem. Yeah, right. So what do you think is the the root of this disconnect? I mean, I agree with you that it's quite a profound thing and it's all over the world, but... What on earth's going on there? It's really interesting to look historically on this because when, and this is something I discovered comparatively recently, despite having studied politics at university, um, I found that in when the founding fathers of the, of the US came together, they saw elections as a way of diffusing democracy. They didn't want democracy. They wanted to have... Um, an oligarchy. They wanted to make sure that the people who were in power were people who were responsible. In other words, um, older, whiter men Um, and people who had property. And so to some extent, there has been a real struggle to extend the franchise without, um, without looking at whether or not elections serve a democratic purpose or whether they serve to maybe expand the elite which is governing us, but to make sure that the elite stays in power. And I think that that's kind of the purpose of elections as opposed to a randomly selected group of people who are making decisions in, uh, like in a legislature. So I think that if you look at the role, at 
the um, political philosophical debate, elections have been seen as a way of maintaining elites, whereas random selection has been seen a way, as a way of increasing democracy within systems right back to Athens. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, you want to talk historically. What, what did they do in the Athens sort of situation? Um, so, I mean, obviously, there were, <laughs> as a non-white woman, um, I could, there were huge problems with the extent to which it was a democracy at all. I would never have been able to exercise any um, kind of um, power in the system whatsoever. But for those who were recognised as being fully human, um, their names were... It, they had a really interesting... Um, machine, which was all the eligible people were put into the machine and it would throw out some counters randomly to choose who it was that would sit in the legislature legislature for the next, um, I can't even remember how long it was, five years or so. So it was, uh, the Senate was chosen by lot rather than by election. Um, And that was seen as being a way of ensuring that the people who were in power were not corrupted by the electoral process and that they were truly representative, um, as I say, in a fairly narrow way, but truly representative of the um, those whose humanity was fully recognised. Of society, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so how... What happened there? I mean, obviously, if you're spending five years, spending a whole great deal of time making decisions for the rest of the community, uh, you're probably going to have a trouble making ends meet. Were they paid for that? Um, I think that, uh, to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure. But certainly, if we're looking at what's happening with citizens' assemblies around the world today, people are being compensated for their time. So... Obviously, at this particular moment in time, there's been a bit of a hiccup in the road of carrying on citizens' assemblies, known as the coronavirus, which prevents people from coming together. But um, across Europe, they've really been taking off in the last year or two um, in quite a remarkable way. And so, for example, at the moment, there is supposed to be well, sitting... I think if we can, Sonia, we probably should backtrack yeah. a bit and explain what it is we're talking about here. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you, you've uh, explained the sort of random selection element mm. there out of Athens. Um, how do we apply that these days with the uh, citizens' assemblies? So... Um, what happens in a citizens' assembly is the first stage of the process. It's called the official name is sortition, but it's basically representative random selection. So maybe the best thing to do is explain how it works for the climate assembly in the UK, which was supposed to be in the process of meeting at the moment. Where so the climate assembly is 110 people, and the way that it started, the process started off with 30,000 invitations were sent to addresses that were, I mean, it's a little bit, it's done through computer systems and things, but 30,000 random addresses pulled out of a hat um, from the um, Royal Mail database. Um, So, and invitations were sent to 30,000 people, and a few thousand people responded and said, yep, we're interested in being part of the assembly. So there is some measure of self-selection. You don't have to. um, It's not compulsory, for example, in the way that jury service is, you can choose whether or not to do it. 
once those couple of thousand people are chosen, then there's, again, it's a software program. But basically what you're doing is you're choosing people along um, so that the final assembly matches the demography of the original pool of people. So anyone that's on the, um, who in the census of the UK is the sort of standard in terms of key criteria such as gender, um, ethnic identification, um, geography, and there are some sort of uh, ciphers for socioeconomic status. Usually it's level of education. I'm not sure if it was level of education for that one. So what you end up with is 110 people. Half of them identify as female. Half of them identify as male. Um, you have a ethnically diverse group of people. You have 18-year-olds um, in the room alongside people who are older. You have people who are um, who have no qualifications alongside people who've got PhDs. So it's a lot more diverse than the elected chambers um, have ever been, um, even just in terms of gender, but certainly in terms of age and in terms of qualification. Mm, so and so, you, so what's, what's the benefit of having diversity? There have been so many studies, mainly in a business context, admittedly, but that recognise that diversity is really um, key to ensuring, you know, business success, the generation of money is the thing. But it means that you're taking into account really different lived experiences. I mean, you can imagine that somebody who is has always um, to take a let me take an example of Jackie Lambie. While you may or may not agree with what she says, her experiences are very different than a lot of people in the Australian um, Senate or um, the MPs. So it's the experiences that she brings as having been a single mother, having been on welfare. I think they've really changed, they have often contributed to the debate being richer in the Senate. And I think that that's part of it. Part of it is that you cannot know what it's actually like being a single mother on welfare unless you're a single mother on welfare. And while you can, um, you might be able to say, okay, so this is what they need and that. If you're doing it from the perspective of an older white male, it becomes really hard to understand the real struggles that a person with that experience is going through. Um, so just the diversity of experiences help to make better decisions because then you, as a room, you know more. The more diversity that there is in the room, the more the room knows. So I think that's one thing. Another example that's more often used in um, is the example of um, iPhones where everyone who tested the original prototypes was right-handed. And so the original iPhones only worked if you were right-handed. Um, so you can miss out key things if your room is completely uniform, if the pool of people that you draw upon are completely uniform. Mm -hmm. Or fa even fairly uniform. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So, okay, we'll go back. Uh, you've chosen a diverse mob, and, uh, and now what happens? Um, so the first process is that they get informed. Now, this is where a lot of people worry, but who's going to choose? So you need to have a respected, nonpartisan person who helps to run the process. 
the best example that I've seen of this um, was in Ireland, where they had a citizens' assembly on abortion. And you can imagine just how um, much of a tinder keg the issue of abortion is in somewhere like the the Republic of Ireland. Um, So they had somebody who was a former High Court judge, a, a woman who was a former High Court judge who was convening the Citizens' Assembly. So she appointed five experts, and I get the mix wrong sometimes, but I think it was two constitutional lawyers, two um, obstetricians and gynecologists, and one medical lawyer. But the lawyers could have been the other way around. Um, And those people were there to inform the assembly. The assembly also took in public submissions. They received 30,000 public submissions, or most of which were available online, unless the person who'd submitted it asked for um, some privacy to the submission. But they were all available to all the members of the Assembly. Um, The Assembly members were also given some basic training in critical thought. So the, the question that they were asked was, why do you hold the opinions you hold, and what would it take for you to change your mind? So really examining what they thought and why they hold those views. Um, They were given lots of information to do some research and things beforehand. And there was a guy who I think he's been a plumber in Ireland, and he was a retired plumber who was part of the assembly. And he says, it's a really good feeling knowing that I'm one of the most informed lay people on this subject in the whole of my country right now. <laughs> well, you would be, wouldn't you? Yeah. So, um, yeah, like, yeah, you wind up with a group of just random individuals essentially mm. getting trained up and asking clarifying questions to people who really, really know their stuff. Mm, exactly. Mm. And that has, I mean, I, I think even just that part of the process must make... It reconnects you with the political decision-making process. I I think that the current system, we feel so divorced from what's happening in that part of Canberra um, that it's really, it seems remote and removed from our lives. And I think that that process of just getting informed helps to connect you with the decision-making process. And as I say, the people who have been involved in them have um, said that they felt that it was a powerful process. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. People always say, oh, Canberra did this and Canberra did this, and everyone in Canberra's going, no, we didn't. (laughs) 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 That was those buggers up there. (laughs) The fly-in, fly-out workers. (laughs) That's right, yeah. Yeah, right, so what what are some of the good examples? I mean, is that, uh, yeah, what happens next? We haven't finished. And then there's the process of deliberation. So it's basically splitting up into small groups and talking about what your opinions are, why you hold them, what you think would be the best outcomes. So they don't start off with a... It's not like a community consultation process where you often are given a report and asked to comment on it. It's more that you have to come up with the report and the proposals yourself. So the one in Ireland on abortion... They made, there were a series of recommendations that they put forward, ranging from no abortion, keeping the status quo, keeping Article 8 of the Constitution unchanged um, and things staying as they are, 
to abortion on demand for the first 35 weeks of pregnancy, so pretty much up to full term. And then, and obviously a whole range of things in between as well. And they voted on them. And two-thirds of the people decided that they wanted to have um, abortion on demand for the first 12 weeks of pregnancy, and then um, it was available under certain circumstances after that. Um, and they voted on it, I say two-thirds decided that that's what they wanted, and then it was put to the parliament. Now, it didn't have any official power. They hadn't decided beforehand what they would do to it, especially because it required a constitutional amendment, and the parliament, which I find unpronounceable, I'm afraid, um, in Ireland, then put the um, question to a public um, referendum, and Article 8 of the Constitution was repealed, and they now have, say, pretty much what the Citizens' Assembly um, voted on, which came as a surprise to the elected representatives. The elected representatives did not think that the general public in Ireland would have voted in line with what the Citizens' Assembly um, approved. There's quotes saying, yeah, no, the, the, the Assembly was obviously just weird and not representative of the Irish people. But it was something like 66% of the Assembly voted in favour of that and 68% in the referendum. So it was a very close match to what the public voted. Mm -hmm. So you've, you've pointed out again this distinction and this divide between the, 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 the community of Parliament, I suppose, and the, and the general community. And, and I wouldn't mind just taking a little, a little diversion again back into mm. history. I mean, what, what's the sort of evolutionary history of the parliamentary community? Who was that when this parliament thing was, was created? Well, I mean, it starts off being just uh, landowners, white landowners in many parts of the world. Um, and slowly the franchise has been extended through, you know, a lot of hard work and sacrifice on the part of lots of working class people, on women, um, Aboriginal and non-white people have all worked really, really hard to extend the franchise. And that has been a good thing. And it has meant that we've seen more diversity in Parliament than we had previously. Um, it isn't all um, older, whiter men. Um, but it is, still, it is still dominated by people who have got money, people who are um, male, people who are... Um, there are a lot more white people in Parliament than there are in the general population. So I think that it's still a, uh, it's still very much people who are in positions of privilege are far more likely to be able to, first of all, feel that they can stand, and secondly, um, to, to succeed in standing. I was just listening to a podcast earlier this morning about a woman called Debbie Simpson, who became a governor in Maine, who had been a waitress when she first ran for um, office. And it was because they had changed the rules that allowed you to run for office with a much smaller deposit. Um, but then the party machinery got back in after she'd been governor for five terms. And since then, there hasn't been anyone of a similar background and the general feeling is that no, that she was the best governor that Maine has ever had, basically. Mm. Um, because the party rules, and I don't necessarily mean political party rules, but the rules of the game tend to mean that 
if you've got more money, you can run a political campaign more easily. If you've got more time, you can run a political campaign more easily. Um, if people see you as being authoritative, which is given the way that the majority of media, not community radio, um, <laughs> tend to depict people, it, the, you are given more authority if you are in position, if you are similar to the people who are currently in power and have been in power for a very long time. And I'm sure that most of your listeners are well aware mm-hmm. of the way that that mm-hmm. operates. Um, so I think that, yeah, it, it has been a struggle to increase the franchise. And, it, and, and I think that's been a really important one. And Australia has often been at the forefront of that. And I think that now we're ready for a new evolution in um, parliamentary democracy, at least to start off with a chamber that is um, an advisory chamber to the elected um, legislature uh, that is um, chosen by random selection. Hmm, interesting, interesting. <laughs> so has there been any examples of, of citizens' assemblies in Australia? Oh, there's been lots. Um, Australia's had, um, was actually um, at the forefront of this for a while. I mean, Canada was where the very first citizens' assemblies of sort of the modern era in 2004, 2005 were held. But Australia has certainly held, um, I think it's something like um, between 20 and 30 citizens' assemblies. Um, There have been, for example, here in Victoria, there was a statewide one on gender equality, there's been uh, the Geelong City Council was um, run by uh, basically a citizens jury. There's been ones in Western Australia on the um, on things like parking and um, rates. There's been there was one in South Australia on nuclear waste dumping. Um, there was the first one I believe was in 2009, which was not a formal citizens assembly, um, but it was run. Uh, it was about parliamentary um, electoral um, reform Um, and that was actually held in Old Parliament House Um, and uh, they they presented their findings to parliamentarians Um, but unfortunately the problem with a lot of them is that they don't have defined influence so for example the worst one in this regard was the one in South Australia in my mind on nuclear waste where the state government convened two citizens' juries. Um, a citizens' jury is basically the same as a citizens' assembly, just smaller, um, and sometimes not even smaller. So it's just a different word that's used to show that it's randomly selected. Um, so, so the citizens' jury on nuclear waste in South Australia, um, they held the citizens' assembly. They w- it was informed. They deliberated. They came up with their recommendations. And the recommendations were quite divided between people who were like, absolutely no to the nuclear waste dump and people who were like, yes, it'll be good for the economy. But it wasn't equally divided. Two thirds voted against the nuclear waste dump and about a third voted um, in favor of the nuclear waste dump. And the reason, and when you look at the um, deliberations and you look at the actual transcript of what was said, the outrage on behalf of the people who voted against the dump was quite palpable. There was outrage that the state government was considering experimental technology that wasn't proven and could have major impacts upon the health and well-being of the population. 
There was outrage that they hadn't respected the wishes of the traditional owners of the land um, by continuing to discuss clear waste dump. Um, and, you know, the, the feeling was quite, as I say, you could tell that people were really quite gobsmacked that the um, government was even thinking about it. Um, and earlier this year, they, the South Australian government announced where they're going to site the nuclear waste dump. Um, because I think they had thought that it was going to be a rubber stamp exercise for economic benefit over health and um, well-being and cultural heritage. Um, and it wasn't. And they just seemed to have ignored it. And that can be the danger. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking you've got the, I don't know, I like to call them community one and community two. You know, the, the first community that Parliament really concerns itself with is that that popular um, Sorry, not popular. Um, I guess the uh, the powerful is what I'm after. Yes, mm. <laughs> different P word. The powerful <laughs> and um, and and rich privileged. community, the privileged community. Yeah, um, you know, Parliament has grown out of kings and, like you say, the rich mm. landowners and stuff. So there's a certain sense of community which has continued over the centuries. And community too, which is the rest of us who have all sorts of different people who have mm. been. Um, been struggling, like you say, and all of the big social movements are a manifestation of this ongoing struggle to, to grasp a bit of power out of the hands of mm -hmm. these people uh, who are community one. So there's a massive cultural divide between community one and community two, but community two, us, is the 99%, which is how Occupy popularised it. So there's a vast mm. thing. Now, we have this tactic used against us called divide and rule which is mm -hmm. pretty common and very much within the culture in a lot of ways um and do you see that uh, a, a citizens assembly with its its vast diversity within there and actually people talking to each other is that likely to be some sort of way to form a bit of solidarity to combat divide and rule within our uh, our community so if, it, if it's not been readily apparent, I'm afraid I'm a bit of a geek. I really like reading about politics and stuff like that. And so there was recently a PhD thesis that was done on particularly this issue and looking at one of the most divided societies in the Western world, um, Northern Ireland. And so the Northern Irish um, political system is seen to be failing um, the general population, because it entrenches the divide between Catholics and Protestants in the way in which the um, political system is made up. There are uh, sort of allocations for Protestants and allocations for Catholics. And although it's better than what preceded it, and certainly better than the decades of violence that preceded it, there's a lot of discontent um, with the system. So there was some research done by, um, as I say, a PhD student, to see if a citizens' assembly would be able to overcome some of those sectarian divides. And I, I'm simplifying hugely here, but basically what he found was that if you pose the right questions, um, which were basically, okay, what do you think a Protestant would think in this situation? What do you think a Catholic would think in this situation? Do you think that they would think it was fair? I mean, we're not talking about rocket science questions here. Um, the, it managed to bridge a lot of that sectarian divide. And I tend to think that if you can overcome that 
sectarian divide between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, the divides we have in Australia are minuscule in comparison. We haven't been killing each other for 30 years in terms of, you know, to some extent, at any rate. Um, so there hasn't been that same open warfare um, here in Australia as there has been um, in Northern Ireland. So I think that it's very promising. And it's basically a system which um, prioritizes and rewards cooperation as opposed to the current system, which prioritizes and rewards um, competition. If you can put the other person down, if you can score a point, then your party is winning. Whereas if you can come together and collaborate, then nobody wins. Who, who wins apart from broader society? But within the political system, which is about party scoring points, there's no points to be gained out of collaboration and cooperation. It's only if you can put the other person down that you can point score. So I think that a system which is collaborative and, as I say, encourages and rewards um, the cooperation is really where we should be heading. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I guess that's, to follow off of that, we could take a step back and sort of just just have a bit of a question about what it is that we are participating in. <laughs> it sounds, yeah. Yeah. Um, so people are actually fairly reluctant to participate in the normal electoral sort of uh, periodic democracy that we have. What, what do you reckon that's a, a result of? Um, like places where there's like uh, non-compulsory voting, like yeah. the US, the turnouts are really low. I think it's, uh, well, I think that part of it is that it's designed that way. Um, the We know that the is... Uh, widespread discouragement to vote, particularly uh, if you're black, poor, um, it, the, the, it's made a lot harder to vote. The second thing is that the feeling of apathy, which I think, again, is something which is supported and to some extent even encouraged, particularly by the media. What's the point? Uh, there's been some research done on the Trump, not the Trump campaign so much, but certainly on the Facebook targeting of the Hillary Clinton voters. Um, and the, the drive wasn't to make them vote for Trump because that was never going to happen. The drive was to make them so cynical of the choices that they faced that they would stay home. Um, and, so, and, and by making people stay home, then it gives free reign to those that do show up. And the people that show up voluntarily tend to be richer. They tend to be more privileged. They tend to be those that see themselves in it. And I think the other aspect of it is education. I have felt for a very long time that we don't teach um, the importance and values of democracy um, and the power of it um, very well. I think that keeping... People don't really... Mm. the fight for rights is seen as something which doesn't really affect the ordinary person. Whereas, as I mean, even just recently with the JobKeeper thing, that was something that the unions fought really hard to extend as far as possible. And it's not perfect, but it would be a lot worse if the unions hadn't been fighting behind it. Um, and so I think that people don't, re don't always see the connection between 
their political actions or their political inaction and what happens uh, and the day-to-day reality. And I don't think that that is the fault of people. I think that to some extent, it's it works very much in the favor of the people who are the community one to keep things that way. Mm, that's right. And I guess the media is another case in point. I mean, have, have you ever looked up the price and considered buying one of the major media networks? <laughs> I think we expensive. all came together. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to be a billionaire to own the media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Thank so, goodness for community radio. So, I don't know. Have you been able to discern, like, you've got Australia and you've got the parliament and stuff. And one of the things I've come across in, in learning how to build uh, organisations and cooperatives and stuff is that the, one of the first things you want to do is to get a purpose. You want to figure out exactly what it is you want to do and define that so that you've got something to refer to and something that you can all gather behind. Do you, what's the purpose of Australia and, and parliament? That's a really good question. Um, at the moment, the purpose of, well, certainly the purpose of Parliament seems, I mean, seems to be to keep things ticking and keep the economy going. And, and I mean, that's the discussion right now around coronavirus. How do we ensure that the economy survives? Mm-hmm. What is the, um, what's the word? The, the collateral damage that's acceptable as long as the economy survives? <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. Actually, that would be the functional goal of Parliament would be to keep the economy and, and as part of that economic growth, exponential economic mm-hmm. growth ticking over. Yeah. Well, what are the implications of that? Um, I think we see it every day. I mean, I'm in Melbourne and if, uh, not right now, but when I could walk down the street, you, the number of homeless people the continuing lack of respect for the people whose lands we're on, um, the lack of respect for that indigenous knowledge and indigenous wisdom, which represents a complete shift from the economy-based, um, seeing people as um, a means to an end rather than ends in themselves system that we have at the moment. Um, I think we see it in terms of, I mean, to some extent, it feels like everyone's, trying to take a breath right now um, because with the the wheel is sort of ground to a halt and with I don't know maybe it's my bubble that I'm in but an opportunity to say so what are the real priorities that we have what what is it that we need to be thinking about um, if it's if we're not going to work and having that out I mean from my house my Husband spends an hour and a half each way commuting because he goes into work on a bike, um, and that. And it's like once you've got that three hours of a day back, fifteen hours a week, what are you going to do with it? And well, just to watch TV. <laughs> well, he's using it to take the kids cycling, which right. I, you know. <laughs> um, and he, also, our roof is caved in. <laughs> oh no! That. <laughs> that. So you know, but it's it's. It, the, the fact that people the seed, people selling seeds are selling out of feed, I think it's showing that there's something happening um, that's re, think people rethinking what 
maybe their priorities might be and that because as people we need money to survive but we shouldn't be surviving for the generation of money and it seems that we've got it wrong we're serving the machine i mean well the, i mean up the, until old, like in the in the late 1800s and up until about the 1930s that was a major a major theme of public debate was what are we yeah. going to do with all of our time once technology releases us from working so hard and we realized that yeah the three-day week yeah yeah now we're working harder than ever well not exactly. harder than ever but harder than we have been since world war Two. but very differently as well it seems that we're working a lot more i mean I, I don't understand the point of an awful lot of jobs like advertising. <laughs> I, I think that they're a great outlet for creativity on one level, but it's all um, surely given that we are an increasingly automized, I know that's not a word, but you know what I'm that getting at. Uh, um, <laughs> society, we can free people up to be creative on their own terms rather than on creative in order to enslave other people to this, to buying stuff. Yeah, yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe it's the same priority that you picked out for Parliament there, economic mm. growth and keeping things ticking over. Yeah. Yeah. And imagine if we had people who've been homeless sitting in the legislature, who've been on the really pointy end of this system, um, people who've been failed by the health service, which I think is an increasing, going to be an increasing number. And I'm not pointing any fingers at the wonderful job that nurses and doctors do, but the resources available um, that seem to be considered to be... Um, that the, the, There's space for negotiation around saving people's lives. But there's, a, again, a cost-benefit analysis around that. Um, and I think that if we had people making the decisions that had that diversity of backgrounds, more people from rural Australia who are living in rural Australia, um, making decisions about rural Australia, I mean, I, there's that huge, again, that idea of the other Canberra, the fly-in, fly-out Canberra, um, that makes decisions for rural Australia which, again, is about the economic viability of country life. It's like, but hold on a second. Isn't there some value to having, you know, encouraging people to live uh, particular types of lives and things like that? What's the beyond economic value component of that? Mm-hmm. How do we really evaluate the diversity of lives and the security of our food supply as well? Yeah, yeah. Look, I found a, a useful way to sort of frame this is is in physical reality and then imagination, because mm. our physical reality is really like it's there. You know, if we don't eat in a few yep. weeks, we're going to drop off the perch. If we don't drink, mm. it gives you a few days, and see how long you can hold your breath. You know, you're part of nature. You need constant <laughs> interaction with that stuff. Um, mm. So we are natural beings and we have the needs of a natural being and those are our real needs. But then I guess in a way somehow over history we've, we've evolved an imaginary um, – a whole set of imaginary institutions which mm. are really profound and, and, you know, money is one of those. We imagine yep. that this little token that's not really worth anything to us, it doesn't do anything, yep. has the power to – 
to get us anything we want. And because yep. we've imagined that, it does. And so now yep. all we can see is the money that we've been enclosed and, and made to require in order to meet all of our needs when, in fact, they're already there, um, mm. the things to meet those needs. We just need them, yeah. Yeah. And... Um, I do think yeah, that we, like we, we, made, we, we made money. Money is supposed to be something which serves us. Yes it, yes. it was something that we created, and yet we end up spending our lives serving the money rather than the other way around. Mm. So the imagination has taken over the, exactly. the reality. Yes. Odd. That's all I which can is, say. Which isn't to say that, you know, we don't need, as you say, the reality stuff, but the constant driving for the security that money is perceived to buy, which has, I mean, at a time like this, you can see that it just, it, it, as you say, it's imaginary. Mm, that's right. And I think they've done some studies. I, I haven't actually read them yet, but I've heard them referenced a few times by various, various talkers that uh, Indigenous people, when they try and figure out how much work they actually did, and I don't know how you define mm. work in that context, it, it wasn't very much. It was like less than mm. a day a week. Yeah. And they got along fine. Indeed. And and that gave more time for richer lives in so many other ways. Well, look at all of the culture and painting and singing exactly. and dancing. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And uh, Yes. So... Yeah, how do you see this um, this citizens assembly and uh, and things like that? How do you see that evolving in the future? What, what's your ideal outcome for all of this? Well, I mean, the long long range goal is um, standing citizens assemblies um, at every level of government, alongside a culture of deliberation um, that is inculcated in people. So, having people's assemblies regularly. So, for example, it would be instead of going, well, alongside things like watching TV and going to the footy and stuff like that, you'd also have time in your weekly schedule where you would attend democratic events because you mm. wanted to be part of the community and because you recognized the importance, not just of being part of that community, but also of training yourself to be ready to be part of the legislature because one day you might be. Yeah, right. I really like that idea. And I guess if if it was seen and it was actually true that participating in these local, regular people's assemblies actually did something, then people mm. it would become a prestigious thing to do. Indeed. Now, can you just explain the difference between a citizen's assembly, which is what we've been talking about, and mm. a people's uh, assembly? The key difference is that element of random selection. So a people's assembly is self-selecting. You choose whether or not to show up. Um, whereas a citizen's assembly, you're randomly selected. People who haven't been chosen can't show up. I mean, obviously, they can watch what's happening and things like that. And the more transparent they are, the better. And as yet, most of them have had been sort of live streamed and you can watch the deliberations and stuff like that. But... They're not, you can't just rock up and say, I'd like to be an assembly member. Hmm. Um, so that's the key difference. But apart from that, in terms of getting informed and having that process of deliberation and things like that, they're pretty similar. 
Yeah, right. So this is all sounding fairly similar to what was evolved up in northern Syria in the in the uh, the, the Kurdish areas of, of northern Syria, which eventually wound up as, oh, I can't remember the latest one before Trump and Erdogan mm. got rid of it, but it was the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. Have you heard about that lot up there? I, I have, um, uh, thanks to you, Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'd heard about it before, but I hadn't, I've still, I think that it looks like a really interesting experiment. And it's not, uh, it wasn't even the first. We've seen these um Democratic experiments. I mean, in the Spanish Civil War as well, there was, which is one that I've um, been fascinated by for ages. Um, there were similar democratic um, initiatives like this, um, and you know, they're they're not actually radically new ideas, as I was saying. It's just that it would be really. I think that the time is right. We've got the technology that makes it much easier to ensure the processes are transparent and ongoing. We've got the level of um, wealth in society. So again, that difference between money and wealth, where we can afford for people to take the time to do these things Hmm. um, in a way that uh, subsistence society might not. Yeah, Um, look, and I reckon it's really interesting that those two examples there, both northern Syria and the Spanish Civil War, resulted from essentially the absence of Community One doing its job. In, in Spain, they, yeah. were, they were busy fighting each other, and, and in northern Syria, they were down south fighting some other rebels. Mm, mm. Indeed. Maybe we should I, be ready. I think it is... Uh, I mean, wherever we've seen citizen assemblies um, taking root in uh, the in the last sort of, like... Um, 10, 15 years, it is because of crises. So, um, and usually um, not necessarily quite to the same extent of um, the of Syria and uh, the Spanish Civil War, but, for example, um, there was, in Poland, mass flooding led to, and the destruction of large parts of the city's infrastructure in Gdansk led to the establishment of a citizens' assembly. In Northern Ireland, uh, sorry, in the Republic of Ireland, it was because the political parties were seen as being unable to find compromise to govern the country properly that they had the citizens' assemblies. Um, the same thing happened in Belgium, where they've got well, a standing citizens' assembly for part of the country now, um, a small part of the country, but a standing citizens' assembly that will advise the elected legislators there. So it's always been, a lot of them have been in response to crises. The ones with real influence have been in response to crises. Um, hopefully, as they have been proven in sort of, quote-unquote, respectable settings, uh, <laughs> respectable to Community One um, settings, it will be less necessary for a crisis to require the um, establishment of them. Um, and they'll be seen as at least initially a complement to the existing political system. Mm, but like you say, that's all getting the system in place and, and getting mm. people trained up and getting the idea into the public imagination. Exactly. Yeah. Look, we're going to have to wind up in a couple of minutes. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Um, can I just give... Our website is coalitionofeveryone.com. We're a non-profit. We just set up a year ago. We'd love to talk to anyone about... Um, 
helping to hold citizens' assemblies or people's assemblies in their area. We think that it's a really powerful tool and we want to spread them out as quickly as possible to help us meet the crisis we're in at the moment and crises to come. Hmm. Hmm. All righty. Cool. So if that's uh, all you'd like to add, we'll wind up there. I think that's great. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking to you. Yeah, that was great. That was, uh, I had a lot of fun there. Thank you. Sonia Rondawa from Coalition of Everyone. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot.